I remember playing Conway Twitty's record, It's Only Make Believe, over and over, wondering, how do they get that sound? A quote from the late Lemmy Kilmister, founding member of Motorhead. One, two, three, four. Greetings to you and all the ships at sea. I'm Ted Green, 15-year tech industry veteran, and you're listening to Bolt Bucket, a waggish gab and sometimes rant on technology in our lives. From mankind's past, the present, and our future. Dad, can you fix my cyborg? When we speak of or consider the ultimate in consumer recorded music technology, a technology with historical significance and longevity, a technology that to this day still delivers what some audiophiles consider to be the best music listening experience, the gramophone, LP, or long play vinyl record reigns supreme. Yes, sashay yourself into the home or personal cave of any audio nut be they classical, jazz, punk, or opera aficionados, and there they are. Cataloged, sitting upright, of course, often wall-to-wall, and positioned in the room as if residing in a museum of Western antiquities. Spoken of in a manner often reserved for collections of original Klimt or Capiello prints, first edition Beethoven scores, or even the original Scrolls of Herculaneum. There they are. The LP collection. Vinyl. The Vinyl Backstory. Vinyl records, which are just a simple analog audio storage device, are still pressed today in limited editions for the aforementioned Arbiters of Audio, and can be traced back to 1857 and one Mr. Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, a French printer and bookseller who lived and worked in Paris. Of course, with a name like that, I doubt anyone confused him for being Italian. Oddly, old Martinville's audio pressings were on paper and could not be played back. That's kind of like inventing non-removable ski gloves or an airplane with no landing gear. So a big thanks to Mr. Martinville, I suppose. But leave it to that propeller head, Thomas Edison, to figure out a way of building something better and make a buck off of it. History is specific in crediting Tommy E. with the concept of a recordable medium that can play back its content. That was around 1877, and Tommy's first run at this used tinfoil wrapped around a metal cylinder. Yes, it seems the marriage of tinfoil and folks with crazy ideas has been with us forever. Anyway, a needle riding on the tinfoil-clad cylinder both embedded the grooves and played the medium back. Tommy later moved on to a wax-covered cylinder and then Edison disc records, but the discs never really caught on. Lateral disc recordings, or the platform with a needle running through grooves, What we've come to know as a vinyl record today began its fledgling life with a Mr. Emil Berliner in 1889 in the form of a 5-inch disc played on a hand-cranked player. And you see these in period films all the time, those hand-cranked wooden boxes with what appears to be a huge tuba bell sticking up from it. Yeah, that's likely a Berliner Victor machine playing his discs. Berliner is also specifically responsible for the term gramophone. And from this point on, Aside from changes in disc size and spin speed, i.e. 45 RPM, 78, 33 and a third, and of course the disc material that it's made from, Berliner's spinning disc and needle in-groove concept stays with humanity until the compact disc debuts in 1982. So Berliner is the key here, and 1903 saw Berliner's 12-inch disc debut. This was really the coup de grace for Edison's cylinder recording technology. 
And as is always the case in media technologies, the Berliner gramophone medium won the format war of that time. Much like the 20th century's VHS versus Betavision war and the early 21st century Blu-ray versus HD DVD title match. But Berliner's discs were weird relative to what eventually became the standard 33 and a third vinyl we all know and love today. I'll explain. For starters, working up to Berliner's 1903 discs, his platter recordings were 7 inches in diameter, then 10 inches, and played at about 70 RPM, he was all over the place with size, making for marketing mayhem. But as stated, eventually Berliner did settle on the 12-inch platter size and his spinning speed set to the industry's first standard of 78 RPM. A speed, it turns out, that was chosen arbitrarily with no specific science behind it. Though some claim it was used to adapt to the often varied electrical voltage supplied to early electrified homes. Varied voltage, of course, means a record's turntable speed will vary from house to house, and therefore inaccuracy in the playback of the musical performance. All records of this era became known as 78s. An eye-opening detail on these early 78s, the recording time, and therefore the playback time of these early 78 records was about three minutes per side. To put this in perspective, when King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, featuring a new young horn player named Louis Armstrong, cut their first recording, the complete song collection required 13 sides. Yeah, that's a stack of six and a half record albums for a band's first release. What's intriguing in the spinning record's evolution is its social and cultural impact. At this point, with a standardized size, spin speed, beautiful cardboard packaging, and reliable record players, the serious hobby of record collecting was born. Now one can just saunter down to the local record store and purchase a stack of tunes and a player for some home family fun. With one caveat. You had to have a last name of Vanderbilt, Carnegie, or Frick to do this. Why? A Victrola record player in the first decade of the 1900s ran the well-heeled customer between $200 and $500. Now, that's 1905 money, so adjusting for inflation, we're looking at $4,000 to $12,000 for a record player here in 2016. The records themselves were roughly $4. That's $93 in 2016 money. So, is the record industry's consumer technology off to a great start? Yeah. Music for the masses? Uh, not so much. The shellac era. This refers to the post-Berliner era and the material used to manufacture records from the period around 1920 to about 1963. So many hardcore record collectors consider this era a category unto its own, wholly separate from vinyl. But there had to be shellac before vinyl, thus part of vinyl story, and I'm sure many have seen an old film where someone in a fit of rage grabs a stack of records and smashes them as if they were porcelain platters. Donna Reed's famous scene in It's a Wonderful Life is just such an example. And the music classroom riot, smashing the recordings of Big Spiderbeck in Blackboard Jungle, is a scene as tense and churlish today as it was on the big screen in 1955. In fact, porcelain is nearly what was in the hands of the music consumer up to the 1950s. Records, while increasing in sound quality and play length, were made with a mixture of shellac and pulverized slate, making for a very fragile relationship with owners and collectors. But the shellac era is credited with the commoditization of the record industry, as players and the records themselves 
became common man affordable. But something more durable and with even better sound was waiting in the wings at various record company labs. Ladies and gentlemen, the vinyl era. As with many technology evolutions, there is never a clean development path and then a razor-sharp break to the new thing. It is always complicated. Vinyl records didn't escape this mess. For example, RCA is credited with the first attempt at a vinyl record release as far back as 1931. A bit later, Decca Records released recordings on vinyl specifically for children due to its durability and resistance to shattering into a million chips of finger-slicing pieces. But it is Columbia Records garnering the credit by many as being the first to mass-release vinyl records in 1948 in the 12-inch 33.3 RPM format. In fact, Columbia went one step further and not only released records on this new, unbreakable material, but also introduced something called microgrooves, a technology designed to provide far better sound than anything previous, and also allowed for more audio playtime per side. These new 33 and a third records had total playback time of about 22 minutes per side, a considerable leap from technology's past, and earning the 12-inch 33 and a third record the moniker of long play, or LP, and that 22 minutes per side still stands today as the vinyl record's average playtime. And, speaking of record grooves, it is here in the rise of the vinyl record era that the pop culture slang term, groovy, is born as a cool, loose reference to anything of greatness. The introduction of vinyl also ushered in the era of the 45 RPM single, making that the sort of quasi-portable version of the 33 and a third. The golden age of the 45 single is generally synonymous with the music from the 50s and early 60s. Also, part of the vinyl era was the return of the 7-inch record. Like the 45 RPM, these were always single-song releases, but often as a rare, limited number of pressings. With microgroove technology introduced, and therefore a dramatic increase in sound quality, new spatial playback audio was possible versus what had been an almost all mono listening experience up to the vinyl era. Microgroove vinyl records brought us the hi-fi stereo sound, the completely different stereophonic sound, as well as quadraphonic sound, essentially an early analog attempt at surround sound. Eventually, sound enhancements that can only have happened with the advent of the vinyl record include DBX encoded records, direct-to-disc records, and eventually a successful attempt in playing back vinyl records via laser turntables, eschewing any audio impurities associated with the then 100-year-old needle and tone arm technology. Any audiophile or record collector will tell you that the sound quality of microgrooved vinyl records, new or old, is highly dependent on the quality and the care of the vinyl. During the early 70s, the use of lightweight vinyl and reduction in the quality of the vinyl compound emerged as a cost-cutting move in the industry. Today, these records are considered inferior by most collectors. So if you're hanging on to that Paul McCartney and Wings album thinking it's a surefire collectible, nope. Frisbee it into the closest landfill. Or keep it in the trunk of your car. The next time you're stuck in the snow, just toss it under the wheels for traction. Vinyl records dominated by far the post-1950s audio format wars, including dethrone attempts by the cassette tape, the reel-to-reel, and the god-awful 8-track tape. 8-tracks! Good God, who thought it was a smashing idea to stop a song in mid-flight of a playback track, 
flip the heads, and then continue on with that Carpenter's smash hit. I say again, who were you? Are you out there listening to this? What the F are you thinking about? But then again, it was the 70s. Anyway, 33 and a third vinyl was the absolute king through the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. In fact, vinyl was so dominant, it spawned vinyl record collector magazines such as Goldmine, a rag that still flourishes in today's digital era. The mad popularity of vinyl also gave us world-renowned record stores, such as England's HMV. Here in the U.S., we had Tower Records, and Tower still thrives today in retro-chic Tokyo, Japan. But the best was the mom-and-pop stores, and especially their names. New York's own Venus Records, Wowsville, and Rocks in Your Head. All long gone. And there were other jewels that came along with the vinyl record, making that era so, so special. Very much included in the culture story of the vinyl record is, or was, or still is, the all-important album cover art. The tin-eared MP3 pixeled album icon sods today have no idea what this even is. Art world legends flourished and became synonymous with the musicians of the era. Salvador Dali did a Jackie Gleason album. And there's Andy Warhol's Velvet Underground and Nico album. Robert Rauschenberg's Talking Heads album. Robert Maplethorpe did Patti Smith's Horses album cover. And even in today's post-vinyl, limited edition, retro-cool, hush-hush, vinyl release era, Banksy and Jeff Koons have adorned 33 and a third vinyl album covers with their art. Additionally, different color vinyl had been manufactured for pressing during the era, as well as the always big news of a double or even triple album release. Miles Davis's Bitches Brew, The Who's Quadrophenia, and The Clash's London Calling are all historical double album standouts. And possibly the most remarkable part of the vinyl record saga was, and still is, its use as a musical instrument. Early underground hip-hop artist Grand Wizard Theodore is credited with this bit of genius, with Grandmaster Flash also running with the idea. Scratching, as it became known, went from underground to mainstream in 1983 with Herbie Hancock's hit single, Rocket, featuring Grand Mixer DST. But alas, the death of vinyl. In 1982, a completely different audio consumer technology ushered in the fantastical era of digital music, with the Sony Philips co-debut of the compact disc. This was the absolute death of vinyl as a mass-consumed product. For collectors and some audiophiles, this is where the sensible world ended, but the madness of vinyl record collecting took off. And to a degree, they may be right in its value, just on content alone. I mean, think about it. The musically mature era of Miles Davis, opera diva Maria Callas, Basie and Sinatra, Patsy Cline, The Beatles, The Ramones, Husker Du, and that first Metallica record. It's endless. All that magnificence captured on an otherwise silly thing called a vinyl record. The future of vinyl. Here in 2016, roughly 115 years after the spinning platter record player was born, and almost 70 years after the vinyl record's debut, I can report the vinyl record and all its required accoutrements are alive and well, selling wildly to collectors, audio nuts, and those seeking pop culture time travel, but in very limited quantities, and collectors wouldn't want it any other way. In fact, just four weeks ago at the annual technology trend-setting Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, 
legendary audio hardware manufacturer Techniques premiered a master stroke, the Grand Class SL1200G Turntable Series. This in an attempt to surf the rising wave of vinyl's resurgence. Available, of course, in limited quantity. As if in sync with the news of this masterpiece in analog audio technology hardware, on January 8 of 2016, one David Robert Jones released his 25th and final vinyl record pressing for the ages. With a limit of only 10,000 copies pressed, all were sold within six days at the astronomical price of $1,140 each. The album's title is Black Star, and we'll all remember Mr. Jones better as David Bowie. That's the deep bucket of bolts on the vinyl record. I usually wrap up with recommended books, films, or other medium for further information on a topic, but on this one, I'll just leave it up to you and your ears. Find a record collector friend or retro chic vinyl store and stop in. Browse about and give a listen. For more on me, you can go to www.boltbucket.net. If you have any questions or comments concerning this or any other Bolt Bucket episode, or would like to contribute content to this series, you can email me here, ted at boltbucket.net. That's T-E-D at boltbucket.net. Until next time, good night.